Welcome to Montrose Podcast, the official podcast of Montrose School here in Medfield, Massachusetts, where girls are called to greatness. I'm your host, Mary Cahill Farella, and I'm very happy that you can join us. Maybe you're an avid supporter of Montrose, a current parent, or a friend of the school. Or maybe you're new to Montrose, an independent school for girls in grades 6 through 12, inspired by the teachings of the Catholic Church. Here, young women achieve academic excellence in a rich liberal arts environment by developing enduring habits of mind, heart, and character. Thanks for joining us as we explore topics that highlight the power of a Montrose education and how it affects the world around us. We have to look at our lives as, as the mission field. And that means going out where there is contempt. You know, the, 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 the word of our master is not to, you know, bring happiness where there is happiness, not to bring light where there is light. That's good, but that's just dessert. It's to go where there isn't light and to bring light. And that means you got to go looking for the resistance. you got to go looking for the rejection. you got to go looking for the contempt and to will the good of the other. And uh, boy, it was hard. it's hard, um, but it's so good once you recognize it as our, our ultimate opportunity. Our guest for this episode of Montrose Podcast is social scientist, Harvard professor, and New York Times bestselling author, Arthur C. Brooks. His most recent book is called Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. Dr. Brooks just gave a talk at Montrose as part of the Life Compass Institute speaker series sponsored by the Elizabeth Schickel Foundation. We previewed that talk with a mini podcast and now invite you into the full conversation about how to love our enemies. So, Arthur Brooks, welcome to Montrose Podcast. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you for making the time. I'm so excited. I have to say that being um, assigned to read your book, as opposed to it just happened to be, you know, recommended by a friend kind of thing, I thought, oh, you know, I have to get ready to dig into this book. It's your homework. It's my Uh homework, exactly. Uh And it seemed almost um, like something I had to put myself in the right mindset for because it had something to do with politics. Right. So I wanted to make sure I was geared up and ready. And as it turns out... A friend would have recommended this book to me, and I would have eaten it up. Hope so. Thanks. Yeah. I appreciate that. It's not very political. It, it you, isn't very yeah. political. Yeah, and part, part of the reason is because the problem we're having in this country spans all across the political spectrum. And so, you know, everything is political. You blow your nose, it's political yeah. in America today. But the point is that that's the problem, per se, that I'm trying to take on with this book, Love Your Enemies. Yeah, and I love, obviously, the title and uh, its inception, but in... In picking it up, that's exactly how I felt. Was wow, this isn't a political book at all. It's actually the antithesis. It's almost what we need mm. to deal with the fact that everything's become politically charged, like you just said, but with that negative connotation. Yeah, for sure. Not with a positive momentum. Yeah, I mean, Aristotle talked about politics as being a really good thing and an expression of our morality, et cetera, et cetera. That's exactly the opposite of what we see today. We need to get back to first principles and the principles that you know that Montrose stands for and that we stand for in the Catholic Church to heal the country and heal ourselves and that's yeah. the point of the book well and starting with self right um, one of the things i love you say when we're contemplating how do we counteract contempt hmm. especially in politics we have to start with number one yeah every time yeah look and in, look inside really. and say look we've joined in my experience in contempt am i treating others with contempt what does that actually say about me what can i do differently how is this an opportunity to try to attain a better moral state and that unfortunately we can count on the fact that we will encounter personal contempt so it's just prepare yourself it's yeah, not if but yourself. it's when and also see it as an opportunity 
Yeah. And it's, it's an opportunity for all of us. You know, it, the interesting thing for, for me as a Catholic is understanding my life as sort of an undercover agent. Uh, you know, you walk around in the world and all sorts of bad and good things are happening, but and we, we, we try to avoid the bad. We, we look for the good all the time. And I understand that's a human, human nature to do that. But the bad is an entrepreneurial opportunity to be the, the undercover agent, the undercover agent for you know, the Catholic Church to express the values that we have, to witness apostolically to other people. If, if there weren't any bad, they wouldn't need us. Right. And so to see these things around us as this big opportunity, I mean, God put me undercover for a reason. I really like that, God putting you undercover. It's, it's, and you cite Greg Boyle's work. Yeah. It's what he's calling us to in terms of radical kindness. Yeah, for sure. Now, Father Boyle, of course, he's, he's in uniform. He's got a collar, um, and and but the people, the rest of us actually can do this apostolic mission, and you know we go about our ordinary lives. We sanctify our ordinary work in no small part by actually doing this priestly vocation where people aren't expecting it, you know, going where we're not we're not invited to do priestly work and saying what people don't expect, and and you know that's how this culture of contempt that we see is is not just something we should regret. It's something we should see as an opportunity to live our best selves and live up to the you know, the standard that which we're called as Christians. Yeah, which is all the more needed, though, the more we see the levels of contempt rise. Yeah, for sure. Um, you mentioned that as Americans, we are hungry for a different and new type of leadership that is authoritative, mm. but not authoritarian. Yeah. And that that will cyclically be born out of having arrived here where we are, which is sort of smack in the middle of contempt. But that hopefully, the hope is that we will cycle back into what we really crave, which is visionary leadership, but not controlling leadership. Yeah, that's right. Now, to begin with, I have to back up this assertion that I make that people are hungry for something. And, you know, I look at the data all day long. I'm a social scientist, so I'm, I'm not a philosopher. I mean, I, I wish I had the chops to be a philosopher. But, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a guy who looks at data. I got my Ph.D. cranking data sets. And I look at public opinion data sets, and I see that 93% of Americans hate how divided we become as a country. That's a huge opportunity. That means that 7% of Americans don't hate how divided we become, and they're controlling our political discourse, and they're controlling the, the media, the way that we talk about politics in this country. In, in the book, I call them the outrage industrial complex, which is you know, 5-7% of the country, and they're manipulating us. But that means that we have this big opportunity to bring uh, uh, what people want and to offer what people want, to have people see within us this more aspirational, more unifying set of values. Uh, that's, I think, what we're going to see more from politicians as well, as they see the opportunity to actually create a new wave in American politics today. It's going to take a while. It's going to take all of us demanding it and demanding it more loudly and bringing other people around to it too, which is why I wrote the book. Yeah, and you're saying it's not enough for us to just aim for civil discourse. Yeah, no, I'd say people always talk about civility and tolerance, and that's garbage as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's just, if I told you that you know my wife Esther and I were civil to each other, you'd say, wow, you really need counseling. <laughs> that's a problem. <laughs> it's a big problem, or that you know, my employees, they tolerate me. and say, you got a big HR problem on your hands. I mean, civility and tolerance are sort of table stakes for having a society that's not blowing up into civil war all the time. But that's not what, which we're, what we're called. We're called to love each other. And that couldn't be clearer. I mean, and, and we're particularly called to love people who are different than us, to love people who persecute us, who treat us poorly. We're, we're called to love our enemies. I mean, I take the title of my book out of Matthew 5.44, but it, that's the most subversive thing you can possibly do. It really is. Dr. King talked about this. There was a famous sermon that he gave in 1957 
on Matthew 5.44, where he said, you know, God doesn't tell you to like your enemies. Because like, he calls it a sentimental something. You know, it's, it's, it's my, it, if they're not your friends, they're not your friends. But you're called to love people, in part because it's a very practical strategy. You're, you're called to persuade people towards something that's better, and nobody has ever been insulted into agreement in the history of humanity. And so hating your enemies will simply not make converts, and you don't have any coercive power, so therefore, what are you going to do? Do the only thing that's available to you, but that's also what you're commanded to do. That's the moral prerogative. That's the moral opportunity of our lifetimes. And, and that's what we're shooting for. Yeah, totally. And as that's much higher than civility and tolerance. Yeah. Much higher than civility and tolerance. And you talk about you know, Stephen Covey's work identifying love as that action, not a feeling, not one step up from like. Um, but yeah. something that we need to do and that we're called to do. Why is it so hard for us to not reply to contempt with more contempt? It's hard because that's the natural reaction. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of neurochemistry that leads us to respond in kind. There's a lot of evolution that leads us to, when, when somebody treats you as an enemy, you react as such that you're threatened by something, you react with, and, and the, you know, the, the, there's a limbic system in our brain, very deep in our brain, that, that includes the amygdala, the nucleus accumbens, certain parts of our brain that, that, that don't respond to, you know, when you're saying, I'm, I'm going to go someplace today, or you laugh at a joke, or you decide what to watch on TV or have for dinner. That's your prefrontal cortex. That's your decision-making brain. But deep inside your brain, evolved more than a million years ago, is the limbic system, and, and that's where your emotions process things. Those are your automatic reactions, your affect, negative and positive. And, and so what happens is when you're threatened, when you're insulted, when somebody treats you with contempt, your limbic system immediately reacts. Your nucleus accumbens reacts. And that's just what forms emotional habits, physical habits as well. And so you react in kind. I mean, that's how you would do it 500,000 years ago. If a, if a saber-toothed tiger is after you, you're going to have fight or flight. That's a purely limbic reaction. That's not appropriate when we're talking about social situations, and it's inappropriate for those of us who don't want to be a slave to our, to our limbic systems. I mean, we, we should be the master of, of how we act. I mean, this is the, 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 the freedom that we're promised as people, is to, is, is to get beyond this, this, uh, this, 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 this the slavery that comes from, from acting only according to how you feel in it or reacting according to how you reacting, feel. Right. That's I the think real problem. We're working with the students at Montrose on this gap all the time mm-hmm. between reaction and response. Yeah, that's right. And the great Buddhist masters have always talked about this. The Buddhist masters say that the, the secret to becoming the master of yourself is, is don't do something differently. You simply need to create as much space as possible between stimulus and response, the gap creating more of a gap. And so when you're, we will all be provoked because our limbic systems are beyond our control. I mean, you can train them. You're going to be a, you know, a fakir, you know, one of these great Eastern masters can lie in a bed of spikes, but that's not me. You know, I'm, I'm going to get my limbic system uh, stimulated. My job is not to say that's bad. My job is to say, oh, that's been stimulated. How, how is that? It's very interesting. Yeah, and observing stop. it. Stop. And, then, and, and get as much space as you can. So your mother was a great Buddhist master. How do I know? Because she said, when you're angry, count to 10. That's the same idea. And so that's basically one of the things that I talk an awful lot about the book. If you want to master your emotions and you actually want to be more persuasive, less coercive, less reactive, and, and therefore more effective, <laughs> living up to your moral standards, but also persuading people. I mean, it's just a very effective strategy. Then you need to get a lot of space in there and choose how to react create new habits. 
Well, that to me also ties into the intrinsic quality of curiosity, right? That we, in order to have true give and take dialogue that's fruitful, that we learn something from one another, we can't go in thinking we know everything and that the other person's wrong. We have to go in with true curiosity so that we can ask questions that we really want to hear the answer to, not that we want to hear what we think parroted back to us. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the lack of curiosity is one of the big problems of the age. It's one of the things that, that people my age always complain about from younger people is that they're brought up without a whole, very much curiosity. I have no doubt that I also lacked curiosity when I was a teenager in my 20s. Uh, but it's a, it's a real virtue. Um, you know, this, it's interesting. There's a lot of new brain science that talks about curiosity. And curiosity really comes from the stimulus of dopamine. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter that gives you focus, that gets an intensely pleasurable neurotransmitter, but it's also the one of curiosity. And so when we stimulate curiosity, when we cultivate curiosity toward other people's ideas and other people's lives, once we get used to it, it's intensely satisfying. It just brings so much happiness. You can actually give yourself more of the neurotransmitter that you crave by by becoming better at being curious about other people's lives. And then you have conversations that are so rewarding that you want to have more of them, but you're not leaving a conversation saying, shoot, I didn't win that person yeah. over. Yeah, that's right. And the idea of, of winning somebody over is not a really great way to start a conversation where you're trying to learn. And, you know, that's a, that in and of itself is a, a humility and pride problem. You know, if I'm going into a conversation with somebody who I'm sure is wrong, and so therefore I'm going to vanquish that particular person, that's a conversation that I'm addressing from the vantage point of pride. And pride is a big problem. Forget the fact that it's just a deadly, like the deadliest of the deadly sins. It's, it's the secret to perfect unhappiness is pride. And, you know, people are walking around suboptimally happy a lot because they're in the grip of pride trying to win all the time. That's, and social media doesn't help us with yeah, that at social all. Media, well, social media <laughs> enables that in a way. I mean, it's like it enables it can, some of our yeah. worst circumstances. Yeah. And I, I don't think social media actually creates the problem, but I think that it makes it easier for us to commit sin. Yeah, because <laughs> it makes it easier for us to compare ourselves yeah and comparison is sort of a form of pride because we well, again, it's envy, that's envy which is another deadly sin yeah. it's like one step up at least according yeah. to dante yeah, <laughs> yeah. so it's all yeah. all fraught yeah exactly right exactly right i love your example in the book of getting an email filled with vitriol from a person who's read your book and completely disagrees and is going to tell you all about that and how you identified you, you practiced this idea of <coughs> reaction let me take a breather sleep on that how am i going to respond to him yeah. And you responded, you found something yeah. in that reflection time to say, wow, I really worked hard on that book. And you read the whole thing. Thanks yeah. a lot. Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> and that's not ordinarily how I would respond because I'm the saint um, trying, <laughs> trying to be. But um, yeah, that was an old book. That was a long time ago. That was before I was you know, doing what I do now. Um, this is the first book I ever wrote that anybody had ever read. I'd written a lot of books that nobody ever read because they were extremely boring. But uh, I wrote this book, and it weirdly uh, started selling you know, hundreds of copies a day just because it hit the news cycle in the right way. And it was as a scholar, as a university professor, that happens sometimes, and you don't know quite how to react. And the weirdest part is you'll start hearing from total strangers. If you have a book that's on the bestseller list, you'll hear from total strangers over and over and over again. And when somebody's read your book, they feel like they know you because it has some autobiographical details in it, et cetera. And, and you know, this guy reaches out to me and just hated my book, and so he hated me. 
that's all he knew about me was my book. And so, you know, you're, this is stupid. You know, you're all wrong. You're dishonest. And he was going through my book, just chapter and verse, literally. I mean, going through every detail saying, this is wrong. This is wrong. It's like a 5,000 word email. But man, wow. I mean, that guy went to a lot of work. And so I thought, I'm never, he's like from Dallas or someplace. I'm never going to see him. So I thought, I'm just going to tell him what I think. I said, you know, I know you hate my book and think I'm a stooge and I'm the worst. And this is terrible, but you went to a lot of work. And I want to tell you, I appreciate it a lot. You know, thank you. I'm so grateful. It took me two years to write the book. I put my whole heart into it. And uh, I thought I'd never hear from him again. But 15 minutes later, I get another email from him. And he says, dear Professor Brooks, you know, next time you're in Dallas, if you want to get some dinner, give me a call. And I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> I mean, he was my enemy 15 minutes ago. And I realized not that he suddenly liked my book. He still hated my book, but he realized he liked me. I separated myself from my product. I was no longer the object. I was an actual person with feelings. To begin with, I'm sure he was shocked that anybody got his email and read it, but that I responded to it. I responded to it with an authentic expression of thanks, of gratitude. Gratitude is the, the fastest way to love your enemy, is to find something that you're actually grateful for and express that gratitude. It's the best way to live out Matthew 5:44 in a heartbeat is an authentic expression of gratitude. Now, fake gratitude doesn't cut it because we have a million ways to ascertain when somebody's being insincere. But if you authentically can find something to be grateful for, it's like, wow, I just really appreciate the attention you gave to that. And I know you don't like it, but it was just, it's very thoughtful of you to spend that time. And, and um, I didn't have dinner with him because who knows, I'd probably be chained to a pipe in his basement right now. But um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a real learning experience for me and I've never forgotten that. Yeah. I mean, just talk about turning contempt on its ear. Because it, people must ask you all the time, how do you do it? How do you do it? And like you said, it's the just opportunities are going to be there. You just do it. Yeah, I mean, you, you have uh, to decide to do yeah, it. Yeah, Aquinas, um, who, who in the Summa, he defines love. And I'm talking about loving your enemy. Uh, he, he already in 1265, he recognized, because this is the human condition, this is not tied to time, that, that people will misattribute love to feelings. And so he goes out of his way to define love as to will the good of the other. Right. right now, my colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, Michael Novak, the great Catholic theologian uh, and philosopher, he added uh, two words to that. He said, to love the good of the other as other. That's very heavy when you think about it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love your good, but as you. Not, I'm not going to love your good for me. Right, I'm not going to take it on. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, well, it's not only that, but it's not, I, I'm not going to do it in my own interest. I'm going to look out for your best interest. I'm going to will your good in your own best interest, which is just incredible. I mean, it's just other serving. It's very biblical. And, and so Aquinas, when he said that, he was, he was purposively talking about will. Of course, he's doing it in Latin because everybody knows that God speaks Latin. And he, he says, to will the good of the other. That's what, and that's what, that means that it's, an, it's a decision. It's an act of will. It's, an act, it's a tough thing. You know, love is not for weak people. Love is for strong people because it requires that act of will. It's not this sentimental act of feelings. And, you know, that was very important for me to understand that. And what that means is that, that we have to build up our muscles and our ability and our, our skill and our, our just our, our uh, objective of, of acting according to our will and not acting according to our feelings. And, and our relationships 
therein lies the playground for, for figuring all this out about ourselves. Right? For sure. And for, for making sure. mistakes and for trying again and yeah. for asking for And for using every and... negative interaction as an opportunity to, to will the good of the other. And to look, I mean, if everybody's super nice to us, I, and, you know, my, my life is so is so easy. I mean, everybody's nice to me. It's the weirdest thing. Everybody's nice to me in airports and in restaurants. Everybody's nice to me all the time, right? And so, in a way, I feel like I got to go looking for contempt. I go looking for places where my way of seeing the world as a Catholic are not welcome, you know? And so, I'm, I'm in academia where it's it can be kind of tricky on purpose because I feel like, and all of us listening to this, we have an apostolic opportunity out there, but you got to go looking for it. It's funny. I have a lot of missionaries in my family on both sides of my family. I'm the first Catholic in the history of either side of my family in wow. ever, 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 ever a convert from when I was a teenager. I mean, it's been since I was a little kid actually, but, um, so a lot of missionaries on both sides and, and, you know, missionaries are funny because they're always going out looking for rejection. And, you know, no, you know, the words nobody has ever uttered. It's like, oh, good. There's missionaries on the porch. Right. Ever. Right. <laughs> ever. Right. It's like, pretend we're not home. So, but they're full of joy. And the reason is because they're going where there's this resistance and, and they want to share the truth with people who don't have it. That is an intensely joyful experience. And we all can get that, but we have to have the mentality of the, of the missionary, we have to look at our lives as as the mission field, and that means going out where there is contempt. You know, the 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 word of our master is not to, you know, bring happiness where there is happiness, not to bring light where there is light. That's good, but that's just dessert. It's to go where there isn't light and to bring light, and that means you got to go looking for the resistance. You got to go looking for the rejection. You got to go looking for the contempt, and to will the good of the other. And uh, boy, it was hard. It's hard. Um, but it's so good once you recognize it as our, our ultimate opportunity. What about your response to this book? Have you ever had any contemptuous responses to this book? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. It's hard to actually, you know, come out and picket the love and happiness guy. And so when I'm, you know, I'm talking about this book on college campuses, for example. I mean, college campuses are, are very tough these days because there's, there's a ton of contempt. There's a... A philosophy that has been broiling and, and roiling these campuses now for several years that says basically persuasions for the birds. Martin Luther King, he didn't have it right. Malcolm X, he had it right. And so, so, so what do you want to do? You got to go back to coercion. You got to take back power. It's a very culturally Marxist way of thinking. And, and so you get on college campuses and it's all fighting all the time. It's very much like politics. It's like Washington, D.C., but in in miniature and instead of you know just seeing it on both sides you tend to typically see it on the political left on on these college campuses so you know from from my point of view as somebody who has traditionally catholic views it's pretty easy to to caricature these things and to treat them with contempt that's my opportunity and so i'm going on campus i teach at harvard university and and i'm talking on college campuses virtually every week and and it's phenomenal um because people come expecting one thing and expecting to fight and they they find something else, and you know, and sometimes it's tough, but, but you know, that's that's why, that's what God put me here to do. Yeah, because it's opportunity for you totally. in your daily life every totally. single day. Exactly right, and so even when you talk about this book, love your enemies, people will be, well, that's a smoke screen for some agenda, and actually it is, except that it's not really a smoke screen. It's like it's right out there. It's Where a, you, you told know, them it's up a, front. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a billboard with blinking lights around right. it. You know, you want to be happy. There's how you do it. But what I like is that you don't just rest on. It's easy to look back and pick up a couple of wonderful verses from the Bible and say, 
folks, it's all right there. But you don't stop there. Yeah. You say, here are ways that we can do it. And I liked how towards the end of the book you summed it up and said, there are essentially five ideas yeah. that I have to give you. One is stand up to the man. Yeah. You know, don't go with the status quo. Um, the second is escape the bubble. Get out of your own purview that says I surround myself with media and people who all seem to agree with me. Mm-hmm. Um, number three is say no to contempt. Mm-hmm. When you see it, identify it. Go look say, for it and yeah, say no to it. Say, yeah. I'm not going to do that. I'm not yeah. going to be a party to that. Um, number four is disagree better. Mm-hmm. And again, I think even the term disagreement might be uncomfortable for some of us right. who are the peacekeepers per se or, you know, right. That we aren't out there actively looking for contempt. The idea to disagree well, you know, go out for a cup of coffee with someone you disagree with and enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and then number five, you know, tune out. Take a break because contempt is all around us right, right now. And so giving ourselves an opportunity to... Tune out from a lot of the noise so you can focus on what that. actually matters. Um, most of what we're doing right now doesn't mean to ignore the contempt, but it means to step back from the news cycle the social media that actually is just so much noise and, and, and gets, makes it impossible for us to actually see what the really important arguments are that are going on. So for sure. So the point of this book is not to just, it's pretty easy to say, you know, it's broken. Our political system is all goofed up. We're, you know, yelling at each other is terrible. There've been a million books that say that. Um, and it's not just to say, and the solution is in Holy scripture. There've been a, million books that say that it's basically 10 percent problem five percent solution and then 85 percent how to do it because this is a how-to manual i mean i wrote this as a social scientist um so my work is tries to bring together synthetically bring together um the social psychology econ- behavioral economics brain science ancient wisdom and theology philosophy and and biography historical biography those are the tools that i bring and as a social scientist i weave these things together to say here's what you can walk away from this with these are tools these are things that you can actually use and so i wrote it as a very practical how-to manual um and actually it's there are a number of people that are using it to start building curricula on this and to teach people on how to do it and how would you advise to get really down to the nitty-gritty you know the, the Thanksgiving table or just the regular dinner table when people are struggling to have good disagreements yeah. around things like our daily politics. Um, one obvious choice is just take it off the table, right? Yeah. It, it, it makes sense. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to make each other uncomfortable. We love each yeah. other. Yeah. But how can we do better at that and better love each other by not taking it off the table? Yeah, well, it's you know one of the problems is that people will have a tendency to talk about what they disagree on, but it's less important, as opposed to what's more important, but that they agree on. And so, you know, I have family members that I disagree with politically. I mean, I'm I'm sort of a black sheep politically in my own family, um, but it doesn't matter because not because we have rules, but because I don't see them that often. And when I do, we talk about the things we care about the most. You know, my parents of blessed memory of you know of our my christian faith our shared christian faith you know that stuff's super important our kids you know what are they up to that's so important we don't even get to a lot of the other things because we don't have time and so one of the things for families that are that are just boiling in these arguments all the time is to remember you care about these things less than other things and so i'll ask people to make a list of the things that are most important that to hear about from other people and they want to talk about the most important in their lives. And politics is like number 10. Yeah. It's way, you know, Donald Trump is number 10 or Bernie Sanders or whatever. 
What's important is your faith and your family and your friendships and your work and talk about the things that are most important first. And you might get to the politics, but by the time you do, you're all laughing and you're understanding each other and things are much better. So to prioritize is incredibly important. And that's the first most important thing to do at Thanksgiving. And to put, it sounds like, put those relationships in a much healthier perspective totally. by saying we don't need to let essentially the smaller things yeah, yeah. start out, you know, control the conversation. Yeah, and you don't start us. with the 10th most important thing on your agenda when you have a business meeting. You wouldn't do that. You say, well, let's, okay, everybody, you know, let's start with a dental plan. I mean, that's not, <laughs> that's not what you do when you're running a business. And so why would you do it at the Thanksgiving table? It's like, can you believe what Trump wrote on Twitter? You know, no, I mean, it's, I, I realize that you, you look at it and you have an opinion about it, but that doesn't mean it should be tops on your list when you're going to go see Uncle Joe and Aunt Marge. Well, I think that's a really interesting perspective then for those of us who've heard, and I'm sure there are a lot of us who've heard, you know, we, we all disagree with family members. I think you yeah. say universally, you go speak on campuses or wherever, give a talk and say, who loves somebody they disagree with politically? Every hand Every goes hand, up. Right. So that we can really all relate to. And I think right. we can also relate to the ties that bind us are much stronger yeah. than the things that may feel broken totally us. yeah and a lot of people will say well you know if somebody has these views about donald trump or politics or something i i don't want to be with them i mean that's just that that's prima facie evidence of bad character and i say, well your priorities are all wrong your priorities are just messed up if you basically are going to sort your friendships and you and god forbid your family relationships on the basis of something that's politics that's less important and and if you you know it's, we're not talking about you know maoist china or nazi germany here we're talking about honest legitimate political disagreements and and things that you might think are right or wrong politically but this is it's just not rise to the standards of you know somebody marching somebody off to a labor camp these are simply political disagreements that we've got we have to keep these things in perspective other people will say well yeah well what about people who are really deserve my contempt and number one nobody deserves your contempt and number two it will never work so what's your point do you want to just like be miserable ruin relationships and never convince anybody of anything but feel sort of morally superior for 10 minutes and be alone that's terrible that's a bad decision and and so there's just no way that it works out that people should be isolating other people and isolating themselves from other people. It's, it's senseless. And what about the worry that, that is out there that, sure, here's our political landscape right now, but what if it leads to something much worse, like we've seen in history that isn't, unfortunately, that far back? What about people saying, but if we don't you know, really take this super strongly and make it a priority, then it could become something worse, like, you know, yeah, I mean it's like Aunt, so. Aunt Marge, you know, she's a big socialist. I got it, you know, and and uh, and so if I don't actually ruin Thanksgiving dinner by telling Aunt Marge that she's an idiot, then you know what? Then pretty soon we're going to have pogroms and labor camps and sending people to Siberia. That's nonsense. That is not right. That is not proportional. That is not. It's not accurate. That's a complete exaggeration. That if you, you to, to anybody who thinks if I don't ruin my family relationships that we're all going to be marched off to a labor camp is is catastrophizing something in a completely inaccurate way. You can absolutely maintain relationships and disagree with other people in America today. And if you don't believe it, then you're simply not paying attention to the course of world events and keeping things in proportion. Right, so loving someone who might be catastrophizing things could look like saying, look, I understand you're scared. Yeah. Uh, this is scary stuff going on. I don't like it either. 
You know, it could be just simply acknowledging rather than saying, look, I know you're so far out there based on my views that we're never going to agree and we're never going to persuade each other. But just seeing the person in front of you is, I think, where we we miss if we put politics first. We've missed seeing the person in front of us because of some other person we don't even know out there. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and a lot of people ask me, and one of the things, like, since I've been on book tour, um, how do you want me to love Donald Trump? (laughs) <laughs> good question. Yeah, it is a good question, except that it's an irrelevant question so far as that he's an abstraction to most people. He's a he's a face on, he's words on Twitter and a face on, on the television. So we're not commanded to love an abstraction. We're commanded to love real people. And so people who really objected to Donald Trump, they're commanded to love the people who love Donald Trump, who are in their midst. And that's totally doable. Right, and, and that's vice reality. Versa for, totally. I mean, it's, it's exactly right. So what happens is people have this antipathy toward the abstraction that is the President of the United States, and they take it out on the reality of Aunt Marge who's sitting across the table, who's a big Trump supporter, and ruin their own relationships and become unpersuasive. And, and, and it's, it's a completely, as they say in baseball, a totally unforced error. Yeah. And it shouldn't happen. Because it's based on a relationship they don't have. They don't, yeah. Uh-huh. I loved Nancy Pelosi's response to a reporter asking her do you hate the president she said first of all i don't hate anybody yeah i'm a catholic and i want to disagree i'm I'm paraphrasing with the question because it associates hate with my name yeah no and that's that's right and you know that she she knows donald trump a little bit but she has some basis for a relationship a little bit certainly not enough of a basis of relationship to hate him i mean to you know to 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 hate somebody you have to have enough of a relationship with them to actually love them and like and that's that's pretty intense that's pretty intimate stuff as a matter of fact and so some people will hate enemies that are they don't know they've never met and love people that they know really intimately well i'm sorry love and hate are both very intimate things they are, and they're yeah. strong. Yeah. And it, it shows how if we throw them around just as words, yeah. they don't have the you proper meaning. It. Yeah, yeah it, it doesn't have its meaning. Yeah, exactly right. What would you tell young voters, so coming on the scene and say our upcoming 2020 election is their first chance to vote, mm-hmm. and they're seeing or maybe perceiving this landscape for the first time because they can feel they can do something yeah. this year. What would you tell them? Well, it's... You know, <laughs> welcome to American politics, where you force all political opinions into two brands. You know, you got your, you got your, you know, your Kool Aid and your lemonade, and you know, you don't like Kool Aid or lemonade. Sorry, drink Kool Aid or drink lemonade. <laughs> and you know, that's just the way it works in a presidential system in a, like a duopolistic political environment where you basically get two choices, and that can seem really frustrating to a lot of people. Um, there's rarely been a time where I cast a vote for President of the United States where I said, you know, I just really love everything about that person. Never, as a matter of fact. I mean, I've, I think twice in my life I've voted for the winning candidate. <laughs> Literally twice in my life. Um, uh, and, and now the person I count is a friend, interestingly, because um, <clears throat> it's for the same person. But, you know, that's okay because it's, it's actually okay. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to live in a democracy where nothing is perfect and we have messy choices and we're trying to make coalitions across disagreement and we're trying to work with people with whom we disagree and that's that's adult life and that's that's something where we don't have to go to war with and be in civil war with each other constantly and so enjoy the fact that you're getting to vote at all that you're in an ahistorically amazing society in which 
you can disagree with your neighbor and you can actually write on social media that both candidates or one are idiots and there will be no knock in the night and no jackbooted thug and you will not be uh, fired from your job, notwithstanding all the catastrophizing that people actually uh, uh, use in, the, in their language about American politics today. And to just basically marvel at the fact that we've got a system that even if you think both are terrible, the system is working and, uh, and you can still make a choice. Work harder such that you've got a candidate you like a little bit better next time and, you know, welcome to, um, welcome to adult life. Welcome to a li- adult <clears throat> life, but also welcome to humanity. Yeah, <laughs> this is messy pretty, stuff. pretty messy stuff, I know. I know. The best that you can do when it comes to making a big commitment to another person is to, you know, marry the person you're going to live with for the rest of your lives and, you know, build that relationship. Don't, don't try to get that kind of relationship when you go to the voting booth. Well, that's what occurred to me when you said I've only, you know, been able to pick a winning president or whatever once or twice. I think, yeah, when we really cast our votes, the biggest vote we have to cast is in our personal relationships. And if that's a vocation to the married life, then then we vote for our spouse. You know, that's... Yeah, yeah and you keep voting for that spouse that's every single it. day. And even, willing the good of that other every yeah, day. Know, and, you know, even when that, that candidate's not that great. My, you know, there's a lot of days when I'm sure that my, my wife thinks I'm as bad as that, you know, any politician, but she keeps voting for me again and again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great note to end on. I really appreciate the conversation, Arthur. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Arthur C. Brooks, author of Love Your Enemies. Please join us for the next talk in the Life Compass Institute speaker series on Wednesday, April 1st, when Head of School Dr. Karen Bolin presents on what girls need to lead. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Cahill Farella, broadcasting the power of a Montrose education. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Montrose Podcast. Please subscribe so that you'll be the first to know about future episodes and share the podcast with your friends and family. If you'd like to donate to Montrose Podcast, your gift will go directly to tuition assistance, a critical part of our mission to keep a Montrose education accessible. Thank you for doing your part to plant the seeds of lifelong Montrose friendships and ensure that each Montrose graduate takes with her a life compass to navigate the challenges beyond Montrose and seize opportunities to shape our changing world. Thank you.